So good morning, Fellowship Greenville. How you doing? Greetings to those of you here in Auditorium One with me, those across the way in Auditorium Two, howdy, and those that are joining us online. If you could be here at church on Sunday, you really need to, so don't just sit around drinking coffee at home, but if you have a legitimate reason, that's fine. Okay, got that plug in. I'll tell you, I wasn't sure I was gonna have it today. I was hoping, but not really expecting, but the good news is it did arrive, and man, I am not disappointed. I received in the mail, right straight from eBay, my Samson, Samson, Samson spirit warrior action figure. Absolutely. Let's take him out of his plastic prison here and see. Let me see here. All right. We'll just throw this over here. All right. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is everything I thought it was going to be. Like, here he is, Samson, with his Arnold Schwarzenegger physique, which when you think about it, maybe there's nothing in the Bible that says he had big bulging biceps, nothing there about that. In fact, it's interesting, if he looked like Arnold, then why would the Philistines be trying to find the secret to his strength? They would just know by looking at him, right? But anyway, so I'm looking at how they've got him decked out here. He's got this brown, rough-hewn tunic, brown leather belt, brown leather wristbands. He's got his bright white J. Crew t-shirt on. <laughs> Not sure where he found that, found that out, but I can also tell you that under the tunic, he's wearing a onesie. So that's, it's, it's all, all, all there, you know. Uh, and and uh, then he's got his, uh, his really cool uh, circa 1100 BC Birkenstocks on. So, uh, that, that's, that's him, and uh, I'm so, so very excited about it. Now, I, I have to tell you, I haven't played with dolls up here since I had Barbie up here with me back in our Philippian series, and uh, so I'm glad to have somebody with me today here on stage. But anyway, in our last exciting episode of Samson, the weakest strong man who ever lived, uh, we learned that uh, of Samson's uh, miraculous angelic birth announcement and uh, I'm going to have some pictures up here, like for the kids in the room. But uh, by the way, these, all these pictures come from uh, BiblePathwayAdventures.com. Really great resource uh, to help in like teaching children Bible stories and that kind of thing. But anyway, we learned of Samson's miraculous birth announcement. The angel basically told Samson's parents that he was, had been chosen to be devoted uh, to God from birth. He was going to be a Nazarite from birth, meaning... First of all, he couldn't eat or drink anything that came from a grapevine, not wine, not Welch's, couldn't eat raisins. In fact, he wasn't supposed to drink any alcoholic beverage. Second, being a Nazarite meant that he could never cut his hair. And third, it meant he could never come into contact with anything dead, animal or human, because according to the Torah, you would become uh, ceremonially unclean if you touched any, anything dead. That was his manner of life. And then we also learned about his mission in life. And according to uh, chapter 13, verse 5, Yahweh told his parents that Samson would begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines, begin to deliver them, not completely deliver them, but uh, complete deliverance wouldn't come until David was made king over all of Israel. But the problem in Israel at this time was not simply that people were worshiping uh, pagan gods and idols of wood and stone. It wasn't simply that they were intermarrying with the Philistine culture and, be, and taking it on as their own. The big problem was that they had accepted their Philistine overlords. They were content with living under their rule, and they were not crying out to the Lord for help. And, and, and so the danger was, was that Israel would be assimilated into the surrounding pagan nations and thereby uh, lose their God-chosen identity as his very own people. And also they would end up forsaking uh, their God-ordained mission to bring blessing to all the peoples of the world uh, through a coming Messiah. So Yahweh 
takes action. He takes the initiative by grace to preserve and protect the people that he loves by raising up Samson and setting him up as a judge, or as we've been seeing, not a Judge Judy kind of judge, but uh, a deliverer or a savior for Israel. So everything starts good, and it's all good, right? Wrong. From the very beginning of his adult life, Samson shows no interest whatsoever in living out God's story for his life. Rather, he lives for himself. He shows no restraint, no self-discipline to his um, Nazarite calling. And we see in chapter 14, as chapter 14 opens, we hear Samson talking to his parents and saying, I want this woman uh, as, a, as, as my wife, and this woman happened to be a Philistine. And so, so that sh- obviously it shocked his parents, and they tried to talk him out of it, but no amount of talking could talk him out of it. And, 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 and this is what is shocking to us. Chapter 14, verse 4 says that in taking a Philistine wife, he was acting outside of God's will, but God was going to use Samson, get this, to bring his will to pass anyway. And the storyteller tells us his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, him taking a Philistine wife, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And we dug into that last week, so I'm not going to unpack it again. But suffice it to say, God's plan to save Israel would not be deterred even if the guy God chose to begin the deliverance wasn't interested in it, and even if Israel wasn't crying out for deliverance. Simply by his grace, God will work to save his people despite all of that, in spite of all that. Now, we're also told that on his way down to make arrangements for the marriage, Samson was attacked by a young lion, which he just ripped the lion apart with his bare hands. And the text says he ripped that lion apart as easily as you can tear a young goat apart. And I've thought about that several times this week, especially when I was trying to tear a chicken wing off a chicken breast. <laughs> and I'm like, I can barely do that, much less rip a goat apart. But anyway, as expected, uh, so, so as a result of that little episode, uh, the, the, the marriage is set, seven-day wedding, a feast, festival is underway. And early in the week, uh, Samson's thinking back on the killing the lion and uh, all that kind of thing and, and, uh, and how there was a hive of honeybees on the inside. And so Samson gives his 30 uh, Philistine groomsmen uh, a riddle to try to solve, which was really impossible for them to solve. And the, uh, the riddle was like a, a dirty trick to cheat them out of a bunch of really nice clothes. And as, as expected, the groomsmen couldn't figure it out, so they threatened Samson's new bride with being burned to death if she doesn't get the answer out of him, which she does. She tells them, they tell him. He's furious. He calls his wife a heifer. Now, listen, I, I have had texts and emails this week from, from several wives and I, and I told you guys not to put this scripture into practice, but you went ahead and did it anyway. And so, um, honey heifer is not an acceptable pet name for your wife. I hope you know that. Stop it. Okay, so anyway, he calls her a heifer. He storms out, goes 20 miles away to one of the five major Philistine cities, Ashkelon, kills 30 men there, takes their clothes, comes back, dumps their clothes, bloodstained closed on the floor of the banquet hall. And then he storms out again, leaving his new wife behind, and he goes home to sulk. And that's where we left him last week, at home sulking, sulking at home. So chapter 15, the father-in-law has no idea what to do with his bellowing, crying daughter. And so chapter 15, verse 1, now I'm going to read from the New Living Translation again, and you can follow along as I, as I read, and I'll give you the like, verse indications there. But it might be good just to sit back and watch the movie in your mind, like I told you last week, and I'm going to have those cool pictures up anyway. All right, so 15 verse 1. Later on during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a present to his wife. 
Now, this is like bringing flowers or a box of chocolates. Of course, food preparation is not a problem for Samson. You understand what I'm saying? <clears throat> so anyway, uh, he said he got the, to the house and he knocks on the door. The father comes to the door. He says, I'm going into my wife's room to sleep with her. But the father wouldn't let him. I truly thought you must have hated her, the father explained. So I gave her in marriage to your best man. But look, look, look at her younger sister over there. Now, she's really more beautiful than the heifer. So <laughs> marry her instead. Now, this is really good parenting. Please don't get parenting principles out of the book of Judges. Verse 3, Samson said, this time I can't be blamed for everything I'm going to do to the Phil Philistines. It's like, okay, so, so the first time you, you could be blamed, but not this time. <laughs> uh, you, got, uh, you ready for what he does? Okay, here's what he does. Then he went out and caught 300 foxes. He tied their tails together in pairs, and he fastened a torch to each pair of tails. Then he lit the torches and let the foxes run through the grain fields of the Philistines. He burned all of their grain to the ground, including the sheaves and the uncut grain, and he destroyed their vineyards and olive groves. Okay, so Samson's thinking, I got really, to really stick it to the Philistines this time. What shall I do? I could burn down their houses. Nah, too boring. Um, I could go down to another city and kill a thousand. Nah, been there, done that. Wait, I got it. I'll catch a bunch of foxes. Yeah, like, like, like 300 of them. And I'll tie their tails together and attach a torch to their tail. And then I'll let those flaming foxes uh, loose in their grain fields. That'll teach them. Like, where does he come up with an idea like this? It's like, it's not in any other ancient literature, the commentaries tell me. I w yeah, I would not think so. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> You got to give him major creativity points for this, though, right? Right. I mean, you got to give him major creativity points. So, how do the Philistines respond? Verse six: Who did this? The Philistines demanded. Samson was the reply because his father-in-law from Timnah gave Samson's wife to be married to his best man. So the Philistines went and got the woman and her father and gave him a good talking to. No, <laughs> these are. Violent, barbaric people went and got the woman and her father-in-law and burned them to death. I mean, that's what they threatened the wife with if she wouldn't reveal the riddle, get the riddle out of him and, and reveal it to them. Verse seven, because you did this, Samson vowed, I won't rest until I take my revenge on you. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury and killed many of them. And then he went to hide out and live in a cave in the rock of Etham. And the Philistines retaliated by setting up camp in Judah and spreading out near the town of Lehi. Now, what's happening here, the whole Philistine army is getting involved. So it's moving from a personal level to a national level. Verse 10, the men of Judah asked the Philistines, why are you attacking us? And the Philistines replied, we've come to capture Samson. And we come to pay him back for what he did to us. So 3,000 men of Judah, Israelites, his own countrymen, went down to get Samson at the cave in the rock of Edom. And they said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines rule over us? What are you doing to us? Are you hearing this? Now, here, here it is. They've accepted Philistine rule, and they accused Samson of disturbing the peace of their slavery, which was Yahweh's plan all along. What are you doing to us? He could say, A, I'm here to deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. He could say, B, I'm here fighting for God's honor. Or he could say, C, verse 11, I only did to them what they did to me. Now that's Samson's version of the golden rule. Do unto others like they do to you. But he did it to them first. Think about this. He made a bet that the Philistine groomsmen couldn't solve his riddles, so he's trying to cheat them. They cheat him and beat him at his own game at the riddle. In retaliation, he kills 30 Philistines in a faraway town. In retaliation, 
the father won't let him see his Philistine wife. In retaliation, he burns their fields. In retaliation, uh, uh, he kills hundreds. Oh, oh, they kill his wife first. Then in retaliation, he kills hundreds more of them. In retaliation, his own people turn him over to the Philistines. And that's where we are in the story. But there's more of Samson's version of the golden rule to come. Verse 12, but the men of Judah told him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, okay, but promise me that you won't kill me yourself. He didn't want to fight his own countrymen. We will only tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines, they replied. We won't kill you. So they tied him up with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So he lets them tie him up. And he lets them turn him over to the Philistine army. Verse 14, as Samson arrived in Lehi, the Philistine army came out shouting in triumph. But the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully over Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrist. And then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey dead animal parts. What about his Nazarite calling? Doesn't matter, no problem, don't worry about it. He kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, donkey, I mean, what could he have done with a sword? Verse six, then Samson sat down to write poetry. It says it right there. I mean, which that's what we all would do after a great battle, right? Sit down and write some poetry. So he writes this poem. With the jawbone of a donkey, I pile them in heaps. With the, don- with the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand of their peeps. <laughs> now, I, I mean, I had to make it rhyme, you understand? Like, this is a poem. Like, it's got to rhyme. The interesting thing is the word for heaps is the same word for donkey. So he's really saying something like, with a donkey, I pile them, into, pile them up as donkeys. But if you put the other word in for donkey, you know that we don't say very much, and I'm not gonna say it, but if you put that word in, now you'll get the real force of what he's saying. Okay, so verse 17. When he finished his boasting, he threw away the jawbone and the place was named Jawbone Hill. Sounds like something out of Crocodile Dundee back in the Australian wilderness somewhere. So, you know, after a battle like that, a man works up a thirst, right? So he's thirsty, and he's concerned that if the Philistines return, he'll be too weak to fight them off. So he cries out to Yahweh. He says, hey, I'm dying of thirst here. I'm dying of thirst here. Is that what you want for me to die of thirst now that I've had this great battle? Is that what you want? Or do you want in my weakness for me to fall into the hands of the Philistines? And I'm, I'm like, I'm waiting for the lightning bolt. Of course, we talked about how God's not the lightning bolt God. He's so gracious. By the way, don't try that at home, okay? Despite Samson's demanding self-centered attitude, Yahweh graciously causes water to come through a crack in the rocks. He drinks and he's revived. So now, maybe now, finally, Samson's going to get it. He's got the whole Philistine army involved. He's thrown a monkey wrench into the peace between the Israelites and the Philistines. The whole conflict has moved from personal level to national level. So now, maybe now, finally, Samson will step up and lead the people of Israel to cast off their oppressors. Maybe, no, no, no. What does he do next? Chapter 16. Well, he goes off to Gaza, another major Philistine city, and he takes up with a Philistine harlot. I mean, it's right there in the text. I'm not making this story up. You can't make this stuff up. And the Philistines, while he's there, the Philistines find out that Samson's in town and they plot to capture him, but somehow Samson sneaks past them. And get this, he tears the massive, heavy city gates off their hinges and he puts them on his shoulders and he carries them 40 miles away up a mountain. Very strong. 
After that comes the story that we're so familiar with, and that's the story of Samson and Delilah. I wish I had Barbie here now, but anyway. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the word Delilah comes from the Hebrew word Layla. And I don't know if that's where Eric Clapton got the, the uh, inspiration for his song, Layla. But Delilah actually means night woman. So when Sunny Boy meets night woman, it's going to get very, very dark. Samson is head over heels in love. Delilah wants to get rich. And the five lords of the five major Philistine cities tell her that if she can find out the secret of Samson's power, they promise to give her 1,100 shekels of silver each, each. Now, Karen and I were helping Addie with her math homework the other night, and it was all word problems. And I hated word problems when I was in school. Like, just let me solve equations. I, can, I, I love that kind of thing. But everything is in word problems, which is probably better, because like, how do you use equations without some context for it? But anyway, so I bet we worked through like 50 word problems. And so I, it's just been imprinted on my brain so I decided to give you a word problem. Here it is. Delilah was promised a large sum of money from five Philistine lords. They promised to give her 1,100 shekels of silver if she could find out the secret of Samson's strength. Write an expression to represent how much money she would receive if she was successful. S equals the total shekels Delilah can make. S equals 1,100 times five. S equals 5,500 shekels. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. How much money exactly? Word problem number two. If the average annual wage back in the olden days was 10 shekels of silver per year, how many years wage could Delilah earn in this deal? Write an expression to represent how many years wage that would be. Y equals the total number of years wage. Y equals 5,500 over 10. Y equals 550 years annual wage. So she's going to be set for life. This is a lot of money. Samson's in love. She wants to get rich. And that concludes today's math class. <laughs> Did you ever think in your whole life you would learn algebra in the Samson and Delilah story? I bet not. Okay, so Delilah goes to work on Samson. Man, I wish I had Barbie up here. Um, three different times she tries to find out the secret of his strength with her pillow talk, but he lies to her each time. Tie me up with bow strings and I'll be as weak as anybody else. Bow strings are, are made out of animal gut, twisted animal intestines, Nazarite calling, never mind, no problem. That's not important. Samson breaks free, no problem. Then it's tie me up with brand new ropes. He breaks free, nope. Rope-a-dope won't work. That's a lie. Weave the seven braids of my hair together with some cloth in a weaver's room, and he says, I'll be as weak as anybody else. Another lie, but notice he's gone from bowstrings to new braided ropes to braided hair. He's getting really close now. Finally, after her constant nagging, which we learned back in chapter 14, Samson just cannot abide nagging. But finally, no, 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 wait a minute. Wait. Let's just stop right here. It's like, don't you just want to go up to Samson and grab the guy by the shoulders? I mean, don't you just want to say, look, bro, if you're in a relationship with a woman who's trying to kill you, that's a red flag. That's a red flag, buddy. This isn't going to end well. But he never catches on. And so the fourth time he tells her the truth. Verse 17. Finally, Samson shared a secret with her. He said, he confessed, my hair has never been cut for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I'd be as weak as anybody else. Now we know 
that all along Samson was keenly aware of God's Nazarite call on his life. He knew what Yahweh had called him to be and to do, but he never took it seriously. And now he's willing to throw it all away for the love of a woman who has demonstrated three times that she will betray him when she finds out the secret of his strength. But he doesn't care anymore. He just wants to be like every other man. That's literally what he says. If my hair is cut, I'll be as weak as every man. Now, commentator Abraham Kuravulo Coravilla writes, he wanted to be like every man. This is a renunciation of his calling, a repudiation of his dedication, a resignation of his Nazarite ship. This was defection. He cast God out. He slapped God's face. He was washing his hands of the whole God business. He just wanted to be like every man enjoying his women, doing whatever was right in his eyes, throwing family, tribe, nation, and God to the winds. Which, Kuravilla says, was what the Israelites also wanted to do, become like the Canaanites, to get rid of Yahweh's constraints and live their lives as they reveled in sex and sacrilege and selfishness. I tell you, I, I had to read that paragraph over twice. And I was, I, I had tears in my eyes that this man had gotten to this place. I mean, how could he not know that she was going to shave his head? He knew. He just didn't care. And so with his head asleep in her lap, she called for someone to come in and shaved his head. And she cried out as she had done before, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson woke up. And this is really sad. He thought he was going to be able to fight him off like he had done every other time. But, but verse 20, he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. He did not realize that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines capture him and they gouge out his eyes. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in prison. It's ironic, isn't it? I mean, his tail-tied, torch-bearing foxes had burned up their, ground, their grain fields and now he's grinding grain. But even worse, this man who lived all his life doing what was right in his own eyes is now blind, which is really kind of a statement that he had been blind to his blindness all along. Very, very sad. Sometime later, the Philistine rulers held a great festival, a huge victory celebration in order to give honor to their god, their major god, Dagon, and they give Dagon credit for Samson's capture, which is really interesting. It's strange and disheartening. The Philistines praise their God for their giving him Samson, giving them Samson. Samson never once gave Yahweh credit for any of his victories. Anyway, there are over 3,000 people at the celebration. And in order to humiliate and make fun of Samson, they bring him out a prison, and they put him in an area of the temple where there's two huge load-bearing pillars, and Samson stretches out his arms, and his hands are resting on those pillars. By the way, the text tells us that his hair was growing back, and Samson prays a prayer. Okay, so what's he going to pray? I mean, is he finally going to get it now? Is he one of these guys that really, he's just one of these guys that has to hit rock bottom before he wakes up and sees the big picture of what God is up to? Is that what's going on? No, no. Verse 28, then Samson prayed to the Lord, sovereign Lord, that's a good start. I'll give him that, that's a good start. Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, strengthen me just one more time and with one blow, here it is, let me pay back the Philistines for gouging out my eyes. Nope, 
He never got it his entire life. In his final moments, he asked Yahweh to help him get personal revenge one last time. Never got it. Samson was a man who had been set aside by God from birth, but he was not able to ever get his eyes off him himself. But the amazing thing is God still used him. Remember at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 5, when the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and his wife, the angel says, your son will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of How would he begin? Verse 29. Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed. In a final act of imperfect faith, he prayed, let me die with the Philistines. Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people, so he killed more people when he died than he had killed during his entire lifetime. And later his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body, and they took him back home and buried him. Born a hero, died a hero. They buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol. That's where our story first started, where his father Manoah was buried. And Samson had judged Israel for 20 years. Or a better way to look at that would be that God judged Israel by giving them a guy like Samson who was just like themselves for 20 years. Okay, okay, I know, I hear you. I know this has come up around dinner tables. I know it's come up in community groups because the question is, Charlie, how... Are you saying that Samson could really be a believer? I mean, how could this guy be a believer? Will we see him in heaven someday? And the answer is, yeah. According to Hebrews 11.39, he was certainly a believer because at the end of that chapter where Barak and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson are listed, it says, these gained approval through their faith. <laughs> as I said last week, his life was not characterized as a man of faith, but when he acted in faith, even faith mixed with selfish motives, God used his imperfect faith to further his good purposes in the world. Let me... Let me let me think of it this way. Let's say a missionary goes deep into the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and there he comes across a tribe of people completely cut off from civilization. This is a tribe of cannibals from Papua New Guinea. He is not a missionary. I just thought the picture was, was apropos. They, these people, they're violent, they're barbaric, constantly at war with neighboring tribes, they're cannibalistic, they're immoral, they walk around half naked, no pictures, leave that to National Geographic. Their chiefs have multiple wives, they worship idols of wood and stone. We can't even get, their, get our minds around how different our lives are, for, are, are, are from their w way of life. Okay, over time, the missionary learns their language. He begins preaching the gospel to this tribe. And after a while, many of them put their faith in Christ as their savior. Even the chief becomes a believer. And then the missionary begins to teach them what it means to follow Jesus, mostly by telling them stories about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Remember, they have no written language. So, of course, they have no Bible. And so the work of translation... Uh, plus uh, teaching the people how to read, plus then teaching them what you might call the whole counsel of God. That's way off in the distance. Now, let's say that later, that year, uh, a year later, for some reason, the missionary is called away and he has to leave the villages and the circumstances are that he can never come back. So after he's gone, the tribe does pretty well uh, they meet in a little village hut and they continue to sing the songs, praise songs that the missionary taught them, a few hymns, and then, and then they would get together and they would retell Jesus' stories, everything's good, until a neighboring tribe comes in and attacks them. And when that happens, their old ways resurface. 
They retaliate with bloodthirsty vengeance, slaughtering men and women and children. And in the process, they're asking Jesus to give them strength and victory over their enemies. And at the same time, they offer prayers and sacrifices to their old gods, you know, just to make sure and cover all your bases. And some of them wearing wooden crosses even eat their dead enemies like they used to. Here's my question. Can people like that be believers? I believe that God in his grace saved people like that. I believe that God by his grace doesn't forsake them when because of their lack of biblical understanding, they fall back into their old ways. And I believe I'll see lots of people in, in the kingdom of God, people from every nation, tribe. You understand tribe doesn't mean New Jersey, right? <laughs> tribe, like the people on the screen. And tongue, people from radically different backgrounds than us. That's judges. That's people like Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. These were not people just like us, except they wore bathrobes and towels around their head and walked with little walking sticks. No, the people in the days of the judges were every bit as primitive and barbaric as the tribe you just saw on the screen. Every bit. For them, faith was a looking forward kind of faith. They didn't know much more than God had promised to one day send a Messiah who would come and set right all this wrong in the world. And every Hebrew woman hoped that she would bear the Messiah. Oh, sure, they, they, they knew some of the commandments uh, found in the Torah, but they had no Christian understanding of God as we know him today whatsoever. And do you, you, you do realize that we know more in this generation, in this church right here, we know more biblical knowledge and background than anybody who ever lived in the history of the earth. In the days of the judges, most Israelites knew God had long ago delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. They knew that long ago, they knew the Joshua stories of God uh, bringing the people into the land and winning great victories there. They knew bits and pieces of the Torah that had been handed down from generation to generation. Some knew more Torah than others, and we'll see that when we get to Boaz and Ruth. Some knew more than others, but the majority of the people were ignorant of Yahweh's will and ways in the world. And Yahweh condescended to their ignorance. He did not require them to know what they could not possibly know. Most definitely God did not approve of Abraham passing his wife off as his sister. God did not approve of Jacob tricking his brother Esau out of the inheritance, even though he used it. God did not approve of Joseph's brother selling him into slavery, even though he used that. God did not approve of Jephthah's child sacrifice or Samson's self-indulgent lifestyle. He condescended to ignorance. Now, my, one of my great mentors, Haddon Robinson, said this, God overlooks ignorance, but ignorance is costly. God overlooks ignorance, but ignorance is costly. He does not overlook unbelief, but God overlooks ignorance. And the, in the book of Judges, we see the ignorance and we see how costly it is. Could these people really be believers we'll see in heaven someday? Absolutely. God used Samson's one act of imperfect faith to stir up serious conflict between Israel and Philistia, and that was God's plan all along. And Yahweh used Samson in spite of himself. He used him in spite of his huge ego, in spite of his self-indulgent, immoral lifestyle, in spite of his bloodthirsty, violent vindictiveness. God used Samson in spite of himself. And that's true of you and I as well. Sometimes God will use us in spite of us. Now listen carefully. 
Some of you may be going, well, that's great. That's wonderful. So in other words, I can just live my life however I want. I'll spend my money however I want. I can spend my time however I want. I can do whatever makes me happy. I can, I can party as much as I want, get drunk as much as I want. I can hang out with whoever I want. I'll just, yeah, thank you, thank you, preacher. I'll just live my life any way I want, regardless of what God tells me to do. Seriously? Really? How did that work out for Samson? Like, he lived a miserable, lonely life. He was angry, seething with bitterness and vindictiveness. He had to constantly watch his back because his enemies were constantly trying to kill him. He was eventually captured, had his eyes gouged out. He died young and stupid. Sign me up for that, yeah. No, Samson's story is not an invitation to live however you wanna live, it's a warning of what happens when you live however you want and you're not gonna be able to use the ignorance excuse. Samson had been invited by God to play a major role in God's big, huge, amazing story. He had been invited by God to play a role in a story that was bigger than himself and really bigger. Samson's role was bigger than any of the judges that preceded him, bigger than Israel itself at this point in time and bigger than most of our stories today. But he decided, rather than living into God's story, he would settle for playing the starring role in his, his own little itty-bitty, teeny-tiny story of himself. Now, here's the deal. I could stand here ragging on Samson for a long time, which I've already done. And actually, I'm, I'm a little concerned about it. Uh, because like you know, when, when I get to heaven and all my family and friends come rushing you know, to the gates to greet me there, I'm hoping Samson's not in that crowd to take me out. <laughs> of course, if he rips me apart like a baby goat, then God will put me back together again cause, and uh, I won't be crying about it because there's no tears in heaven. But anyway, here's the thing. If I'm completely honest, I got, I got some Samson in me. And you got some Samson in you. You got some Samson in you. Because each of us have been invited to play a role in God's big, huge, amazing story. A story that's gone on from before time began. A story that culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ, the great deliverer that Samson points us to. A story that became um, our story because through his death and resurrection, by faith, when we put our faith in him and his story, we become a part of that story, and it's a story that will continue through all eternity. Each of us has been invited to play a role in God's amazing story of redeeming people to himself through the gospel of Jesus. We've all been invited to play a role, but all too often what we do, well, I'll tell you what I do. All too often I end up focusing on my own story. I focus more on my story than God's story. Because you see, I got this natural tendency, this natural default mode kind of thing in me that draws me into believing that life is a story about me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Two of us, okay. <laughs> Sometime you're gonna learn to raise your hand when I ask you. You got the same thing in you. Something inside of you that daily, daily pulls you into believing that life is a story about you. It's like, it's like Samson lived all of his life in his own little story bubble. And the sin in Samson's life, I'm paraphrasing Paul Tripp here, his Sin and selfishness shrunk the size of his life down to the size of his life. Inside his little story bubble, he acknowledged that Yahweh was God. He knew what Yahweh had called him to be and do, but he could never break out of the little teeny tiny story bubble of his life. He was so gifted. 
He was so blessed. He had so much going for him. But do you realize that, that not once in all four chapters of Samson's story, not once does he ever do anything to glorify God? Not once. Does he do a single thing for the nation of Israel? No, not once. Everything he did was for his own selfish pursuits. It was like he took the gifts, his, these gifts and blessings from God, and he said, thank you very much. I'm going to use your gifts and blessings as I see fit. That's blindness. We've all been gifted. We've all been so blessed, and that means we all have a decision to make. Like, am I going to keep the gifts that God has given me, the blessings that have come my way, and, and, and am I going to use them so that I can keep my story bubble intact? Or, or am I going to use them to play a role, play the role that God has given me in the amazing big story of redemption that we find in, in the Scripture? Will I live wide open or will I live in my bubble? See, that, that's the question. Do I, do I just keep God's gifts and blessings to myself and use them as I see fit, or do I lay them all on the altar? Like, here I am, God, here I, here's, here's everything I am, everything I have. You've given it to me anyway, so take it all. Show me what it means to live into your story, not my story. You see how much more life-giving that is than insisting on living in my teeny tiny story of myself? God's calling us out of our little stories into his, his story, his big story. He doesn't want us to settle for playing the starring role in our own little itty-bitty teeny tiny stories. He wants us to come to him and say, Lord, whatever role you have me to play, I want to play that role. I, because I understand that your story, your huge, amazing story is so much bigger, so much greater than anything I could ever imagine or experience on my own. What does that look like? Well, this is the part of the sermon when the preacher puts six ways to live into God's story on the screen. But this is not one of those times. I wonder if we just did one thing. Like when you're reading scripture, when you're praying, when you have like a devotional time, when you're riding in your car and you're, 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 you're thinking and your mind's open to God, what if we begin to pray a prayer that went something like this? God, not my story, but your story. God, not my story, but your story. God, I don't want to play the starring role in my little story. I want to play whatever role you have, have for me in your big story. God, not my story, but your story. What if we did that? What if we did it when we came to those major crossroad decisions of life? Like the decisions that come up when our jobs change or when we uh, decide, when we have to decide to move or to stay or when something happens to a family member or, or, or when we struggle financially or when we struggle with conflicts in our close relationships or struggle in our marriages or with our kids. You see, most of the time, most of the time, what we do in times like that is we say, God, please come bail me out of this situation and help make my story come true. How much of our prayers are really prayers asking God to help us make our stories come true? That's our default mode, to care more about our little stories than God's big story. And it, it just sort of happens, doesn't it? I mean, we can leave here today and we're going, God, I'm going to live wide open. And then, you know, by tonight, when you get in that argument with someone, it's like, oh, got to protect my bubble. You see, what, 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 if, what if we didn't just do it in the big decisions, but what if we start praying that, God, not my story, but your story in the everyday mundane things we do? Like, God, I'm home today spending time with my kids but I want to be a part of your story, not my story. I don't know what that looks like, but that's what I want. Or God, I'm, as I'm headed to work, I'll, I'll be in meetings all day long. I want to be a part of your story, not my story. God, not my story, but your story. God, as I'm headed to the grocery store, I'll be running into people I don't even know. God, as I'm driving down the street, 
I'm gonna, I, I, what, if I have a flat tire, God, as I'm in school in classes today, God, as I'm reading and studying today, God, not my story, but your story. Can you imagine how different our lives would be if God began to answer that prayer? Imagine if Samson got it. Imagine if Samson had been one who finally got it. Can you imagine how differently the stories in the book of Judges would read? Can you imagine how different life in Israel would have been? There would be no chapters 17 to 21 that shows complete evil and darkness over the land of Israel. It, wouldn't, it would be a whole different ending to Judges. And looking forward to God bringing King David about. Can you imagine what, what our lives would be like if we got it? Can you imagine, not just as a person, but as a people? Can you imagine, what if we became a people who are living into God's story, gladly receiving whatever role he's called us to play? Can you imagine what our families would look like? Can you imagine what our churches would look like? Can you imagine what the upstate of South Carolina could look like if we just grabbed hold of this idea of living into the story of God? Can you imagine how it would affect the world if we were simply to take the gifts and blessing God has given us and say, God, not my story, but your story. What if we all begin to pray like that? Can you imagine what we might discover together? Can you even imagine? Probably not. I don't know that I can even imagine it because in Christ, we're told in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. So I don't even think we can imagine what God could do. But wouldn't it be cool to find out? Would you bow your head and just take a moment and talk to God about what he's talked to you about today? Take a moment. Maybe pray that prayer. Ask God what it means for you to pray that prayer. Heavenly Father, it really is mind-blowing to think that you have called us to be your specially chosen people and understand that you're you have invited us into your amazing story, the story that Jesus died and rose again to make forgiveness and life possible for us. Jesus' story that has become our story through faith in him. Father, would you help us be people who wouldn't just give in to the natural default mode of being pulled into living inside our own little story bubbles? Would you help us to be people who are able to get our eyes off ourselves and onto you and what you're up to in the world? Holy Spirit, may it be so. For Jesus' greater fame, his glory, and the glory of his name. Amen.